Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist, and your host. And on today's episode, I am interviewing Tony Overbay, licensed marriage and family therapist, and host of his own podcast, The Virtual Couch. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hey, Nikki. I couldn't wait to jump in. I was just uh, chomping at the bit. It's great to be on oh, your show. Oh, it's great to, to have you on the show. We've been wanting to do this for a long time. You were the very first person to reach out to me and to invite me onto your show after I launched Emotional Badass. Okay. I didn't even realize that. And your episode on the virtual couch continues to be one that is, you know, thousands of downloads more than most of the other episodes because that whole concept of uh, HSP, highly sensitive person, has been, um, it's changed, it's helped me in my practice. And I feel like it's uh, just helped so many people um, that I work with and that uh, reach out to me through therapy. So it has been um, a game changer for me. And I'm grateful for that. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that for for you and for clients and that something about me is effective in helping people understand themselves. That's good to hear. Well, and I know that today we could talk about so many things because this is what happened when we connected on your show. You and I could probably talk for days without taking a breath. And I can hear that you're getting over a cold and have a little, little scruffiness to your voice. So we'll try to keep that in mind as we go through this interview today. But I really want to talk to you about how you handle porn addiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, I, I, I was, I think I had a joke queued up there where I feel like I sound like 80s Demi Moore. I mean, it sounds kind of, you know, that scratchy, you know, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, my voice is on the rebound. Actually, it was gone, which is a horrible thing, as you know, for a therapist. I don't know if your voice has ever left you um, when you talk for a living, but it's, uh, it's brutal, you know? It is brutal. And it's that, that awful feeling going through your day of, oh no, hang with me voice, hang with me voice to get that exactly. last client in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, so, but but your question is a great one. I mean, and I, I you know, can, if you don't mind, I'll give just a maybe 30 seconds, a minute of background. And, um, you know, I, I had a career in software. I was in high tech for about a decade. And I had that, you know, we all kind of hear this cliche, but it was really true where I felt a calling to kind of go back and help men. And I, and I really, I was a new dad. I loved my marriage. I just felt like I just, I, when I would see people complain about their marriages or fatherhood, I just wanted to go help men. And so 
I went back to school. I got my master's in counseling. And what nobody told me through that process was that guys actually don't typically go to counseling. So all of a sudden I show up, you know, in therapy and I'm not seeing the population that I thought I would see. But when I did start to see men, it was primarily when they were coming to me with addiction. And one of the main things that I started working with was pornography addiction. And so I, you know, I learned all of the behavioral tools. I learned all of the things that people could do. But the more that I, I saw, you know, clients, dozens and dozens of clients that were struggling with, with pornography addiction or just compulsive sexual behavior in general, I, I started to recognize that it, you know, it was, that was more of what, it was more of a coping mechanism. And I found that these people weren't, you know, I, I like to say that they were, they had a void somewhere, whether it was a void in their relationships or a void as, in their parenting or a void in their career or a void in their health or their spirituality or their, you know, there was somewhere that they didn't feel connected or lots of places they didn't feel connected. And the pornography or whatever the addiction was kind of jumped in there to fill that space or to be that, um, you know, instant gratification. So, so, you know, that kind of changed the whole way that I did, uh, that I worked with people that were struggling with addiction. It's such an important thing. I, I feel like I've been very blessed to naturally have had many male clients over the years, which I know is not very typical as as I've grown. And one of the things that yeah. really helped me in my own personal healing was seeing men really seek out being a better person, understanding themselves more, wanting to be a better father, wanting to be a better partner and spouse, wanting to just to be a better person in the world. And I think historically men have been told so often in so many ways, directly and indirectly, stuff your feelings toughen up, suck yes. it up, and yes. just live life and plow through. Yes. And you and you nailed it. And I feel like, you know, one of the things is the back in the, you know, if I go olden days, there was a question of, you know, if someone was exposed to pornography, whether it was magazines or a stag film, I think they used to call them. And we're, we're in the day and age now where it's, it's definitely not a if, it's when, you know, when that exposure occurs. And with the prevalence of, uh, you know, easy access to pornography now, that that age of uh, of first you know exposure is is now between eight and eleven years old. So we're kind of dealing with this um, problem where people have had that in their lives. They have turned to that for um, you know immediate or instant gratification. So you've already kind of started with that in mind. So you're right. So now when a guy um, is trying to be a better fill in the blank and then he doesn't feel like he's doing it well enough, or if he feels like that's too vulnerable, it's really easy for the brain to just say, Hey, I know a quick way to fix this. You know, it'll, it'll give us a big dopamine rush. And, uh, but you know, it's not dealing with the, the main issue or problem or, you know, whatever that source of discontent is. So you're absolutely right. Before we get too much into this topic, I want to name this for listeners too, because one of the things I really enjoyed about being on your show is how, you and I are very, very different people. And I, and I think we right. have such an opportunity to sort of host for each, for each other and the world how important it is that people who are very different keep conversations going and keep sort of expanding what we know and how we learn and how we grow. I think part of what's happening in the world right now is there, there's so much reactivity and anger yeah. and hurt that people really aren't listening to each other and they're creating these eco chambers of feedback that is very, very limited instead of expansive. You know, you come from, you know, a very Christian background. I grew up 
very um, Catholic, and then I spent a lot of time uh, in the Lutheran Church. I help a lot of people in my practice who have left organized religion and who have yeah. who have felt very, very hurt and shamed. And and I I've often yeah. struggled to mm-hmm. understand what an an organized religion. Why so many organized religions seem to shame us around? sex and sexuality and sex feeling good, sex being something that we're interested in, touching our bodies and masturbation. So I just want to name all of this as we start to to dive in. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I appreciate that too. I feel like uh, it's interesting. One of the things that I, I feel like my soapbox of all soapboxes is um, taking shame out of this, this entire equation, because I, I do feel like you know, and I've done a lot of media, especially the last couple of weeks. I've got a, a book that just came out about pornography addiction and compulsive sexual behavior and betrayal trauma. And, you know, I often say when people say, hey, you know, but isn't isn't a, a little bit of porn good or that sort of thing. And I always say, you know, my my job is not to judge. My job is to help what somebody brings to the table, what they want help with. And I feel like the where where I go with that is I do feel like that you know, we're missing an opportunity for connection. If, if that's maybe the place that people do turn for the coping or for um, maybe this instant gratification, you know, it, it, but that doesn't mean that I'm trying to bring shame to what someone's behavior is. You know, my goal is that if they're, if that's something that they want to do less of, or if it's something that they don't want in their relationship, then, you know, there are ways to make that happen. So I appreciate you saying that too, because that shame piece, you know, that's the part that really does keep any kind of addictive behavior or compulsive behavior in the shadows, you know, or, or not out in the open to be dealt with or talked about or, or even rallied around. Well, and you're starting to answer a question. So I have, I have a, a client, as I have had many over the years, who just left Mormonism. And I asked if she uh-huh. had any questions. And her question is, in my experience growing up in the church, I noticed people being told that they had porn addictions, when in reality, right. they used it to masturbate on occasion. But oftentimes, any use of porn and masturbating is considered wrong and framed as a soul-crushing addiction. What's been your experience right. with this, and what can people do to combat that? And I think everything about this episode is going to answer this question. No, that's a great question. And, uh, because, you know, it's funny. I've done it again. I hate to keep going back to the, Hey, I've done a lot of interviews, Nikki, but I get asked that all the time about, you know, what is porn addiction? Is porn addiction even a thing? And I'm very open. I mean, there, it's not, it's not in the DSM, right? It's not actually a diagnosis. And if anything, you can look at, uh, impulse control disorder. But so I, you know, be, I, I don't, some people want to call it porn addiction. Some people want to call it, um, a pornography problem. Some people want to, just call it a, uh, a behavior that they want to get rid of. And, and so, but I do feel like a lot of people immediately throw that, um, that, that word or that phrase of porn addiction onto somebody who is, it's not that they have a uh, daily problem with it or even a weekly, or it's, you know, so it, it is kind of used in a general term, especially, you know, not just in the Mormon church, but I find in Christianity in general, where there's a lot of, uh, I just like to call it good old Christian guilt that comes with that, where, um, you know, that, and again, that's what kind of keeps this whole thing in the shadows or what kind of keeps people feeling like they can't open up to if it's their pastor or their bishop or their religious leader about it. And so one of, uh, I actually did a podcast episode with a, um, a podcast that does a lot of training in the LDS church and the LDS faith. And, and in that one, 
my whole episode is removing shame, you know, from the bishop's office. Because I feel like the if somebody comes to a clergy and they want to work on this or they want to lessen, you know, the frequency or if they want to put this behind them, they need to be welcomed into this office. They need to be thanked for coming into the office. They need to be told that they, there is love in that office. And in no place have I ever seen shame be the key to overcoming any kind of addictive behavior. Beautiful. I mean, this is why I wanted to have you on the show, because we need more I think voices like mine who are coming from a non-religious place and we, or, or, and we need voices like yours who are coming from those practices because we do, we need to eliminate shame when it comes to our natural human curiosity, sex and sexuality, our development, the the stumbling and the awkwardness that all of us have as human beings, figuring out sex and what it is and how to feel good about it and how to let go of our own hangups. We all need that. Well, we all look, go through that. And the problem that I often see in when in, in kind of framed in a religious context is it's it is kind of framed as it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Don't think about it. Don't you know all of these things? But then as soon as you're married, then it's like it's wonderful. Now go for it, and not realizing the baggage you know that people then carry into their um, their marriages or their or their partnerships or their um, relationships, where then when they're told, okay, now it's okay, you can be sexual. It's, you know, people don't recognize that if you've spent a decade plus of feeling shame around even thinking about it, you know, or even talking about it, or if in the home, it isn't talked about. And I'm surprised how many people that never had the quote, the talk growing up with a parent, um, because I think that the parents just feel like it's something that's awkward. And so they don't want to talk about it. And, and so the more when we have to start talking about this with kids, we have to be open about it. We have to use the correct terms. We have to, again, not have any shame around that with our kids uh, in order to be able to just start to promote a healthy sexuality. A lot of times when I have somebody come into my office and they, and they are wanting to, you know, put their pornography challenges or struggles or, or issues behind them. Uh, one of the first things I do after thanking them and, and just being so grateful that they're willing to come and, and open up and talk to me about it is, you know, if we want to go full Christianity, I mean, it's, I, I sometimes say that, hey, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Procreate, replenish the earth. I mean, that stuff's in the Bible. It's, you know, it's like if uh, God made you, it's like he made you to feel um, pleasure and joy. And, and you know, that. so it's all normal. It's normal to have the feelings. You know, oftentimes I say, if you didn't have those feelings, that's a whole other thing that we need to talk about. But but so then it's like, uh, how do you how do you use those feelings in, in a healthy expression or a healthy connection? So, no, I, I'm so grateful that you're talking about this, Nikki, because the I, I always say I have yet to find and I've worked with now, I think, 11 or 1200 um, people that have tried to that, that want to get past pornography or compulsive sexual behavior. And I have yet to find one situation where shame was involved in any bit of the recovery. Uh, almost in all of them, I've had to, you know, slowly but surely work with people to remove the shame. But I've never seen it be, you know, a component of recovery. No, I don't think shame can be a component of any kind of recovery. It's absolutely what blocks our recovery. And you're so right about how our psychology works. I think that's been my beef with a lot of organized religion over the course of my life, that they seem to want that that sexual relationship with ourselves to be like a light switch. And we've known for a long time that our psychology doesn't work that way. You can't just get married and then, yay, now I get to be a sexual being. (laughs) There's no light switch like that. So we absolutely bring all that baggage forward 
And it's heartbreaking to me to work with somebody that's in their 60s who has carried yeah. that kind of baggage and shame around sex and pleasure and feeling good over the course of a lifetime simply because they grew up with certain doctrine. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Because uh, I, mean, I feel like that's part of where you're missing out on life. I mean, you're missing out on the, you know, uh, I mean, if we want, again, pulling the total spiritual card, but you're missing out on God's creation, you know, including the human body and the um, the people's sexuality. And so, you know, I, I was uh, I was on a podcast recently where the person was, um, he's non uh, he has, he's a non-Christian, what, what, he's not Christian, but he wanted me to come on and he said, what's the deal with all the shame? And, and it was funny because I think that he, he assumed that I was going to defend shame and, you know, and say, well, here's why shame is good. And it's like, oh, heck no. I mean, there's, there's none of it, you know, there's absolutely none of it. And I feel like that's the part where people kind of attach to these, uh, sackcloth and ashes or broken heart and contrite spirit kind of, you know, these, these type of quotes or scriptures that are in the Bible and they feel like, well, I have to beat myself up about it. I have to feel bad about that. And, and and again, that's the part where I'm like, okay, no, there's there's no nothing productive about that part. You know, um, it's it's just not uh, that's not any part that feels like love. I mean, and, and ultimately, that's what's going to move us forward. Well, and it's baffling to me how like we're about to hit 2020 like <laughs> we're in modern times <laughs> but it's baffling to me how much religion has been able to hold on to shaming almost all forms of pleasure and just why that has yeah. been continued baffles me have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting well we hear you and we have been there too that's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties. Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. Yeah, and, and thank goodness there's, I mean, I, there is a nice movement of, uh, there's a lot of people myself and there's some other people that I've, uh, that I've had on my own podcast. Um, and the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife is one, for example, who's really working with women and, and to, for women's healthy sexuality. And, and I mean, and for me, I mean, I feel like a lot of times, I mean, I don't want to, uh, I love, I love working with individuals. I can't even tell you how much I do and the trust that they put in me, but it breaks my heart at times where I get a new client in and, and it's almost like I hear them you know, even if they've, uh, if they've, and I, you know, whatever the word they like to choose, if it's a relapse or acting out or whatever they want to say, whatever they like to call it. And then I see them kind of, you know, droop their shoulders down and they get sad. And it's almost like they want to show me, no, no, see, Tony, I feel bad. I feel bad. And this is where I'm like, no, I don't want you to feel bad. You know, that that's, that's not going to get us anywhere. That's what's kind of gotten you into my office. And that's what's caused you to continue to feel like you, you know, you're less than or not good enough or that something's wrong with you. And, and that's the part that we have to try to eliminate. I mean, that's the key to having somebody just feel more connected with, again, fill in the blank, partner, kids, career, spirituality, health, you name it. Mm -hmm. 
it really is bonkers that so many of us have picked up the learning that we're supposed to self-motivate by feeling awful. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes I do think that it's, it's almost, is it the fear of, you know, what if I do succeed? You know, is it the fear of, um, let's say I put this behind me and then will I, will I never feel this, you know, euphoric rush or, or that sort of thing? I mean, I, I do wonder at times, is it the, the brain trying to say, hold on now, you know, whatever we got to do to kind of keep things the status quo or the path of least resistance? Because, you know, sometimes it's scary to think about what life will feel like. What if I don't know how to connect with my, with my partner? What if I don't know how to um, really go after the job I want? Or, you know, as long as I can kind of stay in the shame bubble or guilt and then which continues to feed maybe a compulsive behavior, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you see where I'm going there, but sometimes I wonder if it's even a little bit of self-sabotage too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then I think it loops and kind of keeps us stuck. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So let me let me ask you to kind of give the the overview of what what is your program. You bet. Um, so you know, again, kind of with that. First of all, the the kind of the hope. I'm a big strength based person, and we're going to try to remove that guilt, that shame. Uh, I think a big part of this is really looking at what are the stories that that my brain is kind of fusing to or attaching to. And, and I think one of the things that's a little bit has been a tiny bit controversial in the past, I don't feel like it's necessarily the same anymore, is that when someone is trying to, you know, lessen a, uh, a compulsive behavior or an addictive behavior or a negative behavior, is that we often have this all or nothing mentality. And so, you know, if somebody says, okay, I'm never going to do this again, and then they do because the, they've got these nice deep neuropathways of the brain or there's these triggers you know, that, that pop up in their life and the brain kind of goes into almost autopilot and then they, they kind of act out on whatever the compulsive behavior is. And I feel like in those moments, that's when people then, you know, they kind of do the, they throw up their hands. It's almost like they say, see, I mean, I told you I'm broken or I told you that I can't do this or I've tried this so many times. And I feel like a big part of my, my program is identifying, you know, those, those negative kind of stories that our brain is telling us that that cognitive fusion that we have because if we believe those stories the brain tells us, then we don't have to kind of defuse or kind of meditate or mindfully, you know, detach from those stories and, and then go back toward the path of whatever that new goal is that we have. And I feel like in that process, a lot of times there's this concept of harm reduction. So, if you know, if someone was, let's say that they really wanted to put pornography uh, behind them and they were viewing it daily. Well, guess what? If they then the next week, they view it six times and not seven Hey, that's a win. You know, that's a, that's, mm-hmm. that's the harm, Success. that's the harm reduction model. Or, or if they were, you know, and I, and I, okay, let's be like super real. I work with people that compulsive sexual behavior that they go out and, and have unprotected sex, that they have illicit sex that they, you know, and so if they go from that to pornography, guess what? That's harm reduction, mm-hmm. right? Or if somebody's looking, lo- looking at very, you know, graphic hardcore pornography and they kind of dial it back to, um, images or that sort of thing. That's harm reduction, that's success. And so I feel like you, you have to help somebody just find some success or find some victories, or I always kind of say, just get some footing that they can kind of push off from. And so, so with my program, I mean, a lot of what I do is, is some, you know, good old cognitive behavioral therapy mixed with some acceptance and commitment therapy mm-hmm. of identifying those negative stories that we tell ourselves. And there's a lot of uh, that mindfulness component of, being able to kind of really change the relationship with our thoughts and recognize that, Hey, the thought I'm having in this moment, it occurred, you know, you bet it did. And because I'm human or I have this trigger. I mean, one of the examples is 
you know, people like to think that the trigger is, oh, some beautiful woman walks by, but it's really the triggers I find are the most, or I call them crimes of opportunity. You know, somebody's home alone and there's the computer. I mean, that's, that's trigger. Then the brain goes from, you know, it's, there's trigger and then there's a thought and then there's an action. And so the triggers there, they have the thought that, okay, I can totally view porn and then they take action. And so a lot of times I'm just having them, you know, put a little distance, a little space between that thought and the action. And that's where that diffusion comes from or that mindfulness comes from. And sometimes they, they do it perfectly and sometimes they may not. And if they don't, then I always say that, hey, there's this data to work with. You know, there's the game film. Let's look at that. Let's take the shame out of it. And where are some areas that we can kind of, where was the, where were, what was our brain fusing to? Or where could we maybe shore up that trigger a little bit? Because I just want people to have success. Because I feel like that's where this whole, any kind of addiction just lives in this, you know, shame and failure and the what's wrong with me story that they play in their brain. And that's where I say, hey, what if we what if pretend, what if nothing's wrong with you? You know, what, what, if, what if this is just kind of where we're at in life right now, and now we're going to move forward? So I don't know if that kind of gives a, a decent enough overview. Um, it, it does. And it, it tells me something that's very important to me is that a, a healthy healer meets people exactly where they are. And that's what you just yeah. named. And I, I think, you know, it, I'm an addiction specialist. And one of the things that I don't think mental health has done Mm, a good job of for the public is in really defining the nuance of addiction. So I think so many yeah. people, we talk about this 100% abstinence, which out of the gate sounds like a very high mountain for anybody to climb. 100% yeah, of everything. Because so much of what I do with people is working on perfectionism. But the second we yeah. throw the word addiction in there, we want someone to do it perfectly. And and I don't yeah. think we really talk about the nuance of that. And then on top of it, you know, if I'm talking to somebody about heroin or alcohol, you don't need one bit of heroin or alcohol to live. You know, there's alcohol right. or heroin. You don't need one bit of that to live a fulfilled, healthy life. Sex and food are a different yeah. category. And I think we we lump yeah. a lot of things in to this sort of 100% mentality in a way that really yeah. sets us up for self-sabotage and failure. Because sex and food, yes, they can be very addictive, but we've got to look at that in a real harm reduction, with a real harm reduction yes. lens, because we need those things. Absolutely. And, and I just, I love with the way you say that, because that is, uh, back to that, meet, meet a client where they're at. And I know you, I know you love acceptance and commitment therapy too. I mean, I love doing the, you know, when somebody says, man, why am I thinking these things? Well, it, you're thinking those things because you're a human being who you're the only one on the earth who has had all the situations, the, the, you know, the, the nature, the nurture, the DNA, the birth order, the abandonment, the rejection, the, the hopes, the dreams, the people that have left, that have died. You're the only person that has that experience. So you're thinking the things you're thinking because you're you. If you didn't think those things, I always throw in there, this is my own take, but then you're a robot or a psychopath, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, so it's like, it's good that you're having those thoughts. And so I love that you're saying that. So you meet the person where they're at. And so anybody that just jumps in and immediately says, well, here's what you need to do. It's like, okay, we're already going into you know, uh, defense mode, right? Because it's like the person, nobody really does know what, what we're feeling or what we're going through. So we need to start with somebody right there by our side that says, all right, Hey, let's, let's figure this out. You know, I, I, I gotcha. And, uh, and I just, I, you know, yeah. You know. 
Well, I find too, like you mentioned sort of the obvious trigger of someone thinking that, oh, you know, what made me relapse in terms of porn is, oh, I saw a beautiful woman. I think for right, all right. addiction, addictive things, all addictive things. And, and I can argue that all of us are addicted to phones and computers, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I think oh, yeah. it's very human to fall into addictive pattern. And I, I think we don't yeah. name that enough that it's just maybe part of the human experience. And when we're out of balance, we are out of balance. And the more we stay out of balance, the more out of balance and out of whack we get. And we need to know that as a society. But I find that most people look for the obvious tri trigger, like you named, you know, the beautiful woman. People tend yeah. to be really shocked that the, the number one trigger is really the absence. It's boredom. Yeah, exactly. That's why, yes, crimes of opportunity, boredom. The, it's like, uh, well, what else am I going to do? I mean, what have, you know, yes. And that's the, you're absolutely correct. And, and I love what you're talking about with the, you know, so I, on the beginning of my podcast, and then if you read my about, I, I, I say I'm an ultra marathon runner. I've done 150 or more of uh, marathons or longer distances, including races of over a hundred miles um, at a time. And I love that when I get to go speak to schools or whatever, and, you know, and, and I'm asked, Oh, well, why do you do that? And I'll make a lighthearted joke about, so I can eat more ice cream, you know, or whatever. But in reality, it's like, I believe that's most likely my socially acceptable, healthy addiction. I mean, I, I think mm -hmm. that we all kind of have these, these things we turn to. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I have been trying so hard now to just, gently bring awareness to when I'm wanting to check my phone for no reason whatsoever. And uh, because I, it can, anything kind of left, I almost feel like unchecked, we can start to develop a bit of a, a compulsion around or maybe a bit of an addiction. So I, I love that you said that. Absolutely. So it really is just kind of you know, recognizing that and not and not beat yourself up about that either. Well, and maybe in the next 20 years, you know, our field will have a, a much different conversation about human beings and addiction. Well, at large. I, I think so. Yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah. So let's let's do this a little bit. So are you are you pro masturbation? <laughs> so that is such a good question. <laughs> um, I, I actually I love, I, I love that like, I'm asking a guy this is, question. <laughs> I know. I'm like, is Nikki is Nikki going to ask me? So here's where I'm. I've got my private experiences. If I go back to that acceptance and commitment therapy model, right? So, so this is the thing where if I'm working, I kind of, I meet the client wherever they're at. If the client is feeling shame around masturbation, then I'm going to work with them on what are those stories that their brain's telling them. If they use pornography with masturbation, you know, then is that, I want to, I do want to kind of bring some awareness to, is that possibly warping one's sexuality or is that keeping them away from being as connected to a partner? You know, it, with me personally, um, you know, I, I, I've been married for 29 years to my high school sweetheart who I just, I adore. I mean, I adore her more than anything in the world. So for me personally, it's something that I haven't necessarily, uh, turned to, uh, used, you know, because I, I feel like I, I want to have that, any of that kind of an experience with my wife, which she will just be mortified when she hears this episode. <laughs> so it's like, so I, so, I mean, I, I, I think that's my, I, I think I dodged that like a good politician, you know, am I pro, am I con it's like i i want to kind of meet the client wherever they're at i guess if that makes sense well i'm and what i'm hearing and if i was talking to a client the way i would volleyball that back is i'm hearing that it's very important <laughs> to you to be connected to your partner and that that's something is. that is really like a giving thing between you and your partner and so you want to keep that space uh for her 
I really do. And I, okay, see, you're, you're better at that than I am. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to get transcripts of this one, have this one ready for the next time. But I, I, I mean, cause I don't want to shame anyone, but my private or personal experience is exactly that. I mean, I feel like I, again, if someone feels like that's the way that they, they need to cope or even just they want that dopamine hit or to feel good or then, you know, I, I, I want to work with them on what they're bringing to the table. Do they feel like they do that too much? Do they feel like that does leave them not in a position to be as, um, present with their partner, then, then I can help them with that. You know, but for me personally, I love what you just said. I, 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 and, and man, actually, Mickey, you just tapped into something big here. So when I'm kind of working with people to change their relationship with their sexuality, I'm not saying that from a, a standpoint of that they're, I'm saying you shouldn't want to have sex with your partner or, you know, none of that. But I also have a, a podcast where I talk a lot about these levels of intimacy. And there's some amazing research that goes around when you're in this relationship that, you know, we often meet our partner and we find them physically attractive. That's human nature. That's normal. And so, and so we find them attractive and that's our connection. Then underneath the, this, there's the, almost like this ladder at the bottom of that ladder is psychological intimacy. It's honesty, it's loyalty, it's trust, it's commitment. But above that is verbal intimacy. And so we want to be able to just talk with our partner for days, you know, and so, and, and above that is emotional intimacy. So then we feel like if we can just talk to him for days, the next step is we can really open up to him and share our most intimate feelings. So if I jump back up to that, if we start at physical, you know, then let's say we go down and we're trying to talk to our partner and it, it doesn't work. Like we, we, we argue or, or we don't have the communication skills or, you know, to really be able to communicate, but we jump back up to physical because I was jokingly say, because she's hot, you know, or, mm-hmm. or we, I can have sex with her, you know, and then all of a sudden we jump back down on this ladder and we try to open ourselves up emotionally and the person doesn't, isn't there for us. You know, they kind of leave us hanging or they maybe gaslight us or, but then it's like all of a sudden, well, but we can connect physically. And so when the relationship, when we're not really working on that relationship, I feel like too often we turn right back up to, well, at least we can connect sexually. And so that often becomes then the, unfortunately, I believe that found, that becomes the foundation. And when that becomes the foundation, I feel like that's the part where there may never quite be the connection that we want, but we continue to turn back to sexual intimacy. So when I think of my own relationship, then I, I want, I mean, I love nothing more than to be able to just talk to my wife about anything. And I feel that's that verbal intimacy above that's that emotional intimacy where I feel like we can open up and share emotional bids and, and be there because we've done a lot of work around that. You know, the next one up is uh, cognitive and intellectual intimacy. So we don't even, you know, one could be a PhD and one can have a GED, but if we got the verbal and the emotional connection, then we can still connect cognitive and intellectually above that is this is spiritual intimacy. So, you know, if we're connected verbally, emotionally, cognitive, intellectually, we can be in two completely different places spiritually, but we want to talk and share that. And then the physical intimacy becomes the byproduct of those so that is the longest answer in the entire world that you set me up for beautifully, <laughs> Nikki, of that, that I feel like, yes, in my relationship, I want nothing more than to, to have the verbal and the emotional, all those levels of intimacy and then save that, you know, the, I, I think the save that part of the connection for physical intimacy. So I, I don't feel like that for me personally is something I necessarily um, want to kind of turn to on my own. But again, but if, if you see where I'm going with that? Oh, yeah. I, and I'm super grateful for your answer. I, I'm grateful that you, okay. you've answered I, you it. You should me. I was, <laughs> I was standing up and pacing around my office. I didn't mean to make you sweaty. It. <laughs> no, it was good. It was really good. But I love it. I love that yeah. you're naming all these different forms of intimacy. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way 
to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Because all of this work is very, very nuanced. And it's not as simple as saying something is good or something is bad. Now, lots of times I am pro-masturbation because I am working with sexual abuse survivors. And I think that's that's a very intimate oh, way yeah. to start to get to know your own body to start to to have sure. some control over touch and where that's happening so there's a when you look at these things there are ways like just like you were naming tony that that there are ways to be sexual and actually be hiding from intimacy you know there are ways yeah. to use masturbation and sex in ways that are infinitely healthy and increase connection and there are ways to do the very same act that can help us hide from connection and intimacy and we've got to know that that's possible it's not just about doing something or not doing it it really is about what energy am i bringing to this and is this about connecting me or is this about me hiding well okay all that stuff i just said is you just summed it up in those two senses yes exactly yeah no that's that's wonderful So let me move on to this idea a little bit, because I think part of why we're seeing so much porn addiction now is sort of this, uh, how can I say it, modern porn versus vintage porn. You know, I think you used to have to work for it more if you had to go find a magazine and flip through a magazine and then you had to use your imagination to really bring that magazine to life. Like you were still sort of working for it. Yeah, yes. Uh, okay, oh, keep going, and then I'll jump in. That's such a, yes. I think now, like, part of what frightens me, like, when I'm working with mothers of young boys in particular, part of what frightens me is that they're never going to even have that experience of needing to, to find it or to snoop or to, to sort of go through the work to kind of get there, as goofy as that sounds, yeah. because the, all they need to do is turn on the computer and get flooded, and not just with the images of one to a handful of images, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands. So for me, there's there's a big issue with how flooded our youth is with this information. Absolutely. Okay. So that, are you familiar? Um, are you familiar with the Coolidge effect? Have you heard of that? The Coolidge effect. Remind me. Yeah. Okay. This one is fascinating. It's exactly what you're talking about. So you know, when I grew up and uh, I, I love it, one of my friends had a, they had found or gotten a hold of a Playboy somehow, and they put a Boy's Life, the Scout magazine, they put the Boy's Life cover around this one magazine, and this magazine was like revered. This was the magazine, you know, that our whole entire group of little boys had. And I remember one time even he had left it on his uh, bed and he was worried his mom was going to make his bed while he was at school. She did. She set it on the head of his bed. Never realized that it wasn't a boy's life magazine. But but I mean, so yeah, there was a lot of work that had to go into that. Or I remember, I can't even tell you how many times I've talked to people, you know, my age or, or older that 
They knew where their dad's quote stash was mm -hmm. and they knew how to the metic meticulously put it back so that the stack was exactly the same and in that sort of thing. But so the Coolidge effect is fascinating. And I think this is what we're running into now. It, it's, uh, it's this phenomenon where, you know, it's seen in, in almost all spe animal species where males exhibit this re renewed sexual interest whenever a new female is introduced to have sex with, even after the, they're done, you know, having sex with the prior, um, it, it, so, so the, the test was there was a rat and then I think that uh, they brought a, a female rat in and they, they, you know, mated. So then he didn't want to mate with her anymore. Then they bring a new female rat in. Well, he's going to go mate with her. And then he doesn't want to mate with the first two anymore. Then they bring in another female rat and he's going to mate with her um, and to the point of where he, he dies. I mean, it's, you know, it, but it's like this type of mating system is where, you know, what happens is he, the brain is designed to pour out this a, a tremendous amount of dopamine to then, you know, focus, hyper-focus and, and basically get the girl. And if we go back to like evolutionary bi biology, mm -hmm. our, brain, our, bra our brain, yeah, and our brains were kind of thought that, okay, we're going to maybe do this one time. So when you see that willing female, just blast your dopamine, you know, blast those neuroreceptors with dopamine. And so the problem is now when you're exactly right, right? So now when a kid just is every day, he's getting on the computer and he's seeing, you know, porn just at his fingertips, your the brain continually thinks that that's another willing female. That's another willing female. That's another willing female. So it's just blasting the dopamine receptors, blasting them, blasting them. And so then each time it does that, your brain's like not getting that same rush. And that's the stuff where I, I always say I get guys that are, are basically almost in zombie mode where they're just clicking through video after video after video, just trying to see what's going to kind of stimulate them. And so what typically happens then is then they start looking at worse things or more, you know, grotesque things, more violent things, more because it's whatever they, they, they feel they need to get that dopamine rush because they totally gained the dopamine system. I mean, it just blasted those neuropathways. And so that, I mean, I think that exactly speaks to what you're talking about, you know, that without having to kind of work for it or, you know, there it is. It's like it's there constantly. And that's the part that then just leads to kind of more and more um, aggressive or, or those kind of uh, types of pornography. And when you're doing that with a kid's 12, 13, 14 years old, you know, you can see where that's going to set the table for some real challenges in both relationships as well as in, in you know, even a, a man's view on women growing mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Well, and I want to name this to normalize it, that I am seeing uh -huh. an increase in mindful, insightful men who don't have what we would call a problem coming to the yeah. basically coming to the conclusion of I'm going to look at less and less and less and less and less pornography because of this Coolidge effect. Yes. So if you're yeah. out there limiting it, like, please don't think that everyone is out there just looking at as much porn as possible. There are people who right. are mindful, who are really seeing like, okay, I mean, it's like anything. It's like chocolate. I cannot eat as much chocolate as I want to stuff into my face. I have to give myself <laughs> some limits. And people are really coming yeah. to this on their own. And I just want to name that, that if you're if you're doing that work alone, if you have had some of these ideas, please let these ideas solidify and know that you're not alone. And people are doing this all across the world to bring more mindfulness yeah. and more balance and more health into their own life and the life of their families. Well, and I, and I love that because I feel like that in its in its essence is, you know, whether it's my path back uh, recovery program or whether it's, uh, um, you know, any any kind of strength based program is saying that what we had talked about earlier 
if somebody just feels like, okay, I am, I am just done, never going to do this again. I mean, and you know, for a small number of people, they never will. And and that's wonderful for them. But for others, those triggers are kind of, you know, they, those neuro pathways are pretty deeply dug in. And so then that's the part where then, yeah, if they do then, um, relapse or again, whatever they want to call that, that, that now you can see where then they go to the man, what's wrong with me story. And then they often just go right back to the behaviors they're at. So I like that you're saying that. I like that you're naming that. So it's just, it's just bringing some awareness. You know, it's just not expecting perfection. It's taking the shame away and it's just, you know, being more mindful of, of, of what your ultimate goal is. If it's to kind of, uh, lessen the use or even after he- hearing that Coolidge effect, uh, description of, of just not letting things kind of continue to amp up, so to speak. But I, I love that you're saying that. It's like it can be done and it's, and it's, and it's perfection is not, needed. It's not uh, expected. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad we're talking about this today. Me too. Ah, is there anything that you want to add about your program? Anything you think we need to know about porn, recovery, addiction? So, so I, I mean, I think we've covered so much because I, I do, I'm, I'm not good at promoting myself. I, I literally have, uh, I have a book that's been out for about a week and it's called, um, he's a porn addict. Now what an expert and a former addict answer your questions. It's available on, on Amazon. It debuted at the, on the number one spot in sexual health and recovery. Wow, and, and it's congratulations. Really, I know, right? Oh, th- thank you, Nikki. I mean, it's like kind of cool. I, I, but the, what I love about it is I had a guy on my podcast named Joshua Shea. And he had, he was a, a politician that ran a film festival. I think owned a magazine. And then he, he was caught, um, with some, uh, some teenage chatting with teenage girls or that, but so he ended up getting arrested. It was a big news story. He ended up doing some jail time, recovery, rehab. And he came out and he wrote a book called The Addiction That No One, No One Knows, Nobody Knows. And then he did about 70 or 80 media spots, including my podcast. And then, and I thought it went well. I enjoyed talking with him. But then he came back to me a few months later and pitched this project for his second book. And so we have eight chapters of almost any question you can ask about pornography, about um, addiction, about compulsive sexual behavior. And I answer it from the the view of the expert and he answers it from the view of the addict. And we specifically went in with the, we're not going to see what the other person wrote in mind. And, and then it, it really, I feel like it's really powerful. I mean, mine is what you're getting here on your show where I just go into strength-based, no shame, forgive, you know, forgiveness, uh, you know, you can do this. And Josh is, it's fascinating to see him really dig deep into the, he's very open and honest about the stories his brain would constantly tell him and the lies that he was telling himself and the way he was covering things up and, and the shame that he was facing. And so it's a fascinating book that just really talks about both sides of the equation. So I feel like for somebody who is, is experiencing betrayal trauma, it does help them understand maybe, or have a little bit more empathy for, maybe the person that, that caused the betrayal, maybe the addict in their life. And I feel like for the, for the person struggling with addiction, it does two things. One is I think that they'll read it and go, wow, that's me. Like, this is where I'm at. Not that that means you're going to end up, you know, getting arrested and, and being on TV, but maybe it, it feels like people can understand if they do feel like they're kind of starting to get a little bit more out of control. But I think it also helps the person that's struggling with the, maybe the addictive behavior to then see what their partner is really going through and the, and the, the self doubt that their partner has, or when their partner is trying to say, man, is, is this about me or am I not enough? Or did I cause this? Which the answer to all those is no, you know, 
So I really feel like that the, the book really addresses uh, from both sides of the coin. So I think it's good for um, the trade, for addict, as well as for professionals who who need a resource to kind of hand. So sorry to go on that big of a pitch, but... Um, Oh, no, that's wonderful. And I'm happy that this fell one week after your release because you're right. You're not good at promoting this because I was just looking at your stuff and it's not even on your website. Uh, Okay, fair point. (laughs) So I'm glad you got to mention it. So let me help you promote yourself again. Please tell me the name of the book one more time. Go ahead. Plug it. Yeah. So it's it's called He's a Porn Addict. Now what? An expert and a former addict answer your questions. And you can find it on Amazon. You can search for my name or just the name of the book itself. And, uh, yeah, it's available now and I'm, I'm releasing a podcast in the next day or two with an interview with Josh. We kind of talk about the getting the, what, what the book uh, led up to creating the book and, and kind of the whole process of, of writing the book. And, and, uh, but I think it really can help. I think it can help a lot. And really, um, I know I feel a little goofy saying it, but I am very proud of it and, uh, really excited to, it has a lot of professional reviews on the website itself. And so I think it'll be exciting to see if we can really help some people. So thank you, Nikki, for promoting it. That helps a lot. You're so welcome. I can't wait to get it and put it on my shelf and dive into it. I, oh, I, I'm sending you. Oh, I'm sending you some. I'm thank sending you. A couple you. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I'll give you my address when we get off the, off the call. That'll be great. That'll be great. Perfect. Good. Oh, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I know you were recovering from losing your voice. You sounded <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting for this for a long time. I know we uh, we were trying to get together, and both of us had a maybe a missed two. And I was so excited because your your podcast on mine again. If, if your listeners haven't heard you on my podcast, please go listen to that episode because you were incredibly open, incredibly vulnerable. I've had I can't. I mean, I think I've even forwarded you. I've texted you a couple of people that have yes. you know shared things with me, right? Of what like what a difference that your episode on my show has made in helping people feel. Um, heard or feel okay or normal or the whole HSP uh, piece or equation has been mind-blowing to me. I mean, it really has. Clients I was working with regularly that heard that and said, oh my gosh, I kind of get it now. And I mean, I, I don't think a day goes by where I'm not really, you know, pulling up a HSP assessment or just help. And, and people just feel like they finally aren't, you know, nothing's wrong with them, that they're human, that it can be a gift. And that was the thing you talked about it on my podcast being, being a superpower. And I remember about halfway through our, our interview when that really clicked and I thought, doggone right, you know, that is a superpower. <laughs> and uh, don't let anybody like tell you it's not, you know? That's right. That's how I feel. Thank you so much for validating <laughs> that for me and for helping me know it's still scary for me and sharing my story. You know, so much of our training is in not sharing ourselves <laughs> as a therapist. Right. And, I, and I do. I, I think there's a lot that that we can grow from when we vulnerably show who we really are and what we're really doing. I, I think that's the real human piece of this, this work that we do. And so thank you for validating that can for I, me and I, supporting yeah. me. Oh, absolutely. Can I share with you? I have to just one more thing and this will actually make sense of what I'm about to share. I waited 150 episodes before I, I did a two part on my own uh, ADHD diagnosis. And man, that again, talk about the floodgates opening up of uh of people find it finally feeling like, wow, that's me too. You know, and I, and I, people that haven't wanted to talk about it or people haven't wanted to um, admit it or, and it's like, man, what a power to, to kind of just own it and embrace it. And so I, man, I hear you. I mean, I don't know why it took me so long to open up about it, but I mean, now if you go back and listen to this podcast, you probably see it, uh, 
oozing out of every pore, but uh, you know, <laughs> it feels so good to just kind of own it. It, it does. Really does. It does. Well, thank you for using your superpowers of sensitivity to help people in <laughs> all the ways that you do. And thank you for coming on Emotional Badass and just coming into my world. I appreciate you so much. And I just know we're going to meet in real oh, life what you do. sometime soon. We are yes, probably we are. two of the busiest people on the planet, but it will happen. <laughs> <laughs> it will. I, can't, I can't wait. I can't wait. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you for tuning in and listening to me interview Tony Overbay. If you'd like to learn more about his work, find him at TonyOverbay.com. Check out his new book that just released, He's a Porn Addict, Now What? And check out his podcast, The Virtual Couch. If you like his podcast, maybe you go back and listen to the episode where he interviews me. If you like this episode of Emotional Badass, please find the shows and share them with someone that will be interested and who can benefit from listening to this information. This is why I do Emotional Badass. I know it's why Tony does the virtual couch. We are here to reduce shame and help people live their very, very best lives. And it's not only possible, it's our jobs to help ourselves live our very, very best lives. Thank you so much. I'm an emotional badass. Tony Overbay is an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets mindful. Take care and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. find it hard to sleep at night then the calm cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long calm cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires all of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast calm cove is brought to you by the team behind sleep cove the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. <laughs>